Our passage this morning is Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 1, and I'll give you a minute to find it in your Bible so you can follow along. It'll also be projected as usual. Mark chapter 15. As you're finding your way there, I want you to picture Jesus. Just pull up in your mind, do a Google image search in your mind, picture Jesus while you're finding Mark chapter 15. Now, I wonder what each of you are picturing. What do you, what do you imagine when you picture Jesus? Probably many of you are picturing him, a uh, man in his 30s, dark hair, dark beard, what we imagined they wore back then based on movies and stuff in terms of like a robe of some sort teaching, having some people following him, or maybe performing miracles or doing some of his ministry. That's probably what most people brought to mind. Some of you might have brought to mind Christmas imagery, Jesus as a baby in a manger, although we're nowhere near Christmas, so that seems a little less likely. It's possible. Some of you might have brought to mind the picture of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins. It's one of the most iconic images that we usually have in our memories of Jesus. See, the great thing about Jesus is there are many facets to him. You will never come to, your, to an end of trying to grow in your understanding of Jesus Christ. I've talked to you before about how if you had a big diamond in your hand and you could turn it and see all the different facets, every little turn you would see the light shoot through and you would see a little bit of a different display. It's the same diamond, but a little bit of different angle of the glory of it. And Jesus is the same way. You can see him as a healer because he did heal. You can see him as a miracle worker. You can see him as a teacher. You can see him as the Savior from our sins. You can see him as our Lord. And all these things are true. And as you take it in more and more over the course of your life as a Christian, The more you get to know him from these different angles, the more you love him, and the more deeply you trust him, and the more determined you are to follow him as your Lord, and the more vigorously you want to proclaim him and tell other people about him. And so that's what we're after this morning. We're going to look at Jesus from a very specific angle, maybe one that you don't tend to think about Jesus in these terms as often, but we're going to think about Jesus as king, as a king. Maybe one of the reasons we don't usually think about Jesus in king terms is because we don't have a king. We're Americans, and we have a president, which is different from a king. So royalty, that imagery doesn't come as easily to us as maybe some of our brothers and sisters from other nations. But Jesus is the king of kings, and we're going to think about him in that light this morning. We'll see that Jesus is the king who was dishonored by everyone, but will one day be honored by everyone. We re-enter the story in Mark chapter 15 after Jesus was arrested and the Jewish religious officials arrested him and tried him and found him guilty of blasphemy and they want to put him to death. And now they're leading him to the Roman officials who actually have the authority to put him to death. Before we read these, these passages though and look at Jesus, the dishonored king, let's pray together because we need God's help to receive his word, not just to stay awake during a sermon but to receive God's word and be transformed by it. So let's pray. Father, 
we do ask that you would help us to stay awake during the sermon, that you would help us uh, after a week of hard work for many of us, help us to focus. Give us the mental clarity and energy to receive your word, but not just in our minds, in our hearts. Would you please transform us through your word now? Would you give us eyes that would see Jesus as the King of Kings this morning and let it grow us and mature us as Christians? Please, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So our passage is lengthy, and we'll break it into three sections. First, we'll see that Jesus was accused as a king. Then we'll see that Jesus was condemned as a king. And then we'll see that Jesus was mocked as a king. So this first section, Jesus being accused as a king, is verses 1 through 5 of Mark chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So Jesus is being accused of being a king. And if you'll look back in verse 2, you see the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor. He was sort of like a middle manager in terms of the Roman bureaucracy, the Roman government. He wasn't as powerful as Caesar. Or he, he had some authority here, though. And so the Jews brought Jesus to the Romans, who actually had the authority to carry out an execution. The Jews wouldn't have been allowed or supposed to do that in this case. And so bringing Jesus to the Roman officials, they need to word it just right so that they will feel some justification to put him to death. When the Jews were questioning them, they said, are you the Christ? And everybody present knew what that meant. Are you, do you claim to be the Messiah? Do you claim to be the long-awaited Savior King that will establish an earthly, eternal kingdom? And Jesus said to them, yes, I am. But here, he's not so direct. And here, the accusation is a little bit different. Pilate doesn't ask him, are you the Christ? He says, are you the king of the Jews? So it seems like, and based on the other gospels, that the chief priest brought Jesus to Pilate and said, he's claiming to be a king. He's trying to lead an an uprising of the Jewish people against Rome as their king. So this is your problem. You need to deal with it. And so Pilate turns to Jesus, this broken, beaten, defeated man whose followers have all scattered, and who stands there having been beaten in the face by the Jewish people, the Jewish officials, and says, are you the king of the Jews? Is this what you claim? And Jesus gives this enigmatic answer, you have said so. And it doesn't really explain exactly why he answers that way, instead of saying, yes, I am, and I'm your king too. But if you look at the other gospels, it seems like they had a more in-depth conversation in which Jesus actually tried to explain to Pilate, those are your words. You're saying, are you king of the Jews? And you have your limited understanding of what that could mean, but I'm a king of a kingdom that transcends this world. I'm a king 
of a kingdom that transcends all earthly kingdoms. In other words, I'm not really a threat to you in that way, Pilate. I'm not trying to overthrow Rome off the backs of the Jews. I'm much bigger than that. And you can't really even fully understand it. So basically saying, those are your words, not exactly my words. And that's all he responds to Pilate here in Mark's version. It would be Jesus trying to explain to Pilate that he is the king of kings, of a transcendent kingdom that surpasses all kingdoms, would be like if I could somehow become an ant and enter into one of the fire ant mounds in my yard and explain to the queen of that ant mound, I'm in charge, but not like you think. I'm not trying to take over your ant mound. I'm in charge of all these ant mounds. I'm in charge of this whole yard. That ant's little ant, whatever thinking faculty an ant has, is not going to understand that any better than Pilate could have understood what kind of king Jesus was. And apart from God revealing it to us, we can't fathom it either. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of the Romans. He's the king of the emperor. He's the king of everyone. He's the king of kings. So the Jewish officials should have submitted to Jesus as their king. Pilate should have submitted to Jesus as his king, but they didn't. And so we read on, Jesus was accused as a king, and now we'll see him condemned as a king, starting in verse 6. Now, at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So apparently there was a Jewish insurrection where some faction of the Jewish people tried to rise up and overthrow the Romans in some way, or at least attack the Romans, and Barabbas was a part of that. And he had been arrested and was held in custody. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Remember, Jesus had been amassing these huge crowds of followers and As that went along, the chief priests and all those people got increasingly angry with them because he was challenging their authority and exposing their hypocrisy. Pilate's pretty perceptive, and he sees that that might be the case. So he thinks, you know, I don't see anything worthy of death in what they're accusing Jesus of, so I'll appeal to the crowds and say, would you like for me to release to you the king of the Jews? Because he knew Jesus was pretty popular. See, another thing you need to know about Pilate, he had had some complicated relationships with the Jewish people in the past that put him on precarious footing here. If he didn't handle this well, he could have a genuine uprising on his hands, and not only would the Jewish people be angry at him, but his bosses would be angry at him. So he was trying to figure out a way out of this that would not result in a lot of trouble for him. Verse 11, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
Now, why would they ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus, the king of the Jews? It's not clear if this is the same crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and waving palm branches. It could have been that this was a different crowd of people. But Jesus had been extremely popular, and all he had done was teach with God's authority and heal people. Why would they turn on him like this? Well, I think it makes sense if we think about it for just a minute. When they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem with the palm branches as a king, they didn't anticipate or want the kind of king he would prove to be. They, didn't, they weren't looking for a king of an eternal kingdom that would transcend kingdoms and would actually leave them at that time under Roman oppression. They just wanted a king to lead them out of Roman oppression. They just wanted to be Israel, their own sovereign nation again, and that's, they had defined for themselves what they wanted. And here was Jesus. They thought maybe he would be the guy. And here he stood, bloodied and defeated and abandoned by all his followers. And so they see the two men, Barabbas, who had fought bravely in an insurrection against Rome, who had been willing to kill for the Jewish people to try to free them from Roman oppression. And then here's Jesus, who had never fought, who surrendered willingly, who had no army, who had no prospects, defeated. It was over for this one. So yeah, give us Barabbas. Kind of makes sense why they chose Barabbas. They couldn't see that Jesus genuinely was their king. But why did they want him crucified? Pilate said, what do you want me to do with this one that you call king of the Jews? Perhaps they could have said, keep him in custody for a while and then release him later. I don't know, maybe that wasn't an option. But they went to the nuclear option, crucify him. This was the worst execution you could receive for just the lowliest of criminals. Why were they so vicious? Well, again, Mark doesn't explain it here. Perhaps the evidence in this text itself points to the simple answer of a mob mentality. It says the chief priests were stirring up the crowd to say crucify him, to release Barabbas. So maybe they just dispersed out in the crowd and started chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And something happens to people when they're in a crowd. People get really stupid when they get into a crowd. And maybe they were just, well, it sounds like this is what the crowd is doing. This is what the mob is doing. This is what the gang is doing. This is what the herd is doing. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Thoughtlessly, stupidly chanting, crucify him who genuinely is the king. He was there to save them from their sins. Beware the mob mentality. Whatever their reason was, they handed him over to be crucified after being scourged. We've talked about what scourging is before. It's a whip with multiple strands. On the end of the strands are hard and jagged objects like bone and rock that dig into the flesh. This is brutal. This is brutal and bloody and horrific and violent. So they hand him over to the Roman soldiers we see the third and final section we'll read this morning. Jesus was accused as a king, condemned as a king, and now we'll see that he's mocked as a king, starting at verse 16. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. 
And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. And spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. And put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So the Roman soldiers had a, had a good old time with Jesus. They were mocking Jesus. I think just as much they were mocking the Jewish people. You know, the Romans had you know, regal officials and rulers and the emperor himself who was thought to be basically God or a God. And they were saying to the Jewish people, this is your king? This bloody, defeated, abandoned weakling is your king? Hail Jesus. Hail the king of the Jews. Here's your crown that they twisted out of thorns. Here's your purple cloak, some garment that they had lying around, mocking him and beating him and abusing him. This is probably the most shocking act that has ever happened in human history, this whole thing leading up to and including the crucifixion. And it gets worse as we'll read Friday night, as we think about the crucifixion and Jesus' death and burial. But for now, let's just stop here and observe Jesus, the king who was dishonored by everyone, by the Jewish officials, by the Roman officials, by the crowds, by the Roman soldiers. Dishonored, 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 dishonored. Why would we follow this man? Why would the gospel writers, all four of them, and then through the epistles, make this so prominent and report on this so truthfully? You know, back then, if one kingdom conquered another kingdom, they would try to conquer that other kingdom's king alive so they could bring him out and make a public spectacle of humiliating them. To just put out of anyone's thoughts the notion that that king would ever rise up and rule anyone again. And by all appearances, this is what happened here. Satan had won, the world had won, had conquered and had brought Jesus out to humiliate him in front of everyone, discredit him. So why do, why do we follow him? We see through the rest of Scripture that Jesus was not dishonored because he couldn't stop it. This is one reason why we follow Jesus, though he was so humiliatingly defeated by all appearances here. He wasn't mocked and dishonored because he was powerless to stop it. He could have called down an army of angels and destroyed everyone, but he didn't. This dishonoring was not because he was weak, it was because he was strong. In the book of Acts, when they talk about this event, when they talk about Pilate, they talk about it in reference to God's sovereignty. That word means the fact that God is in control of all of this. None of this was outside of God's control. In Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28, the early Christians, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, had been preaching, proclaiming Jesus is the king, and they were being persecuted. And some of them had been released from prison, and they came back, and they were praying together in a house, and they prayed, Sovereign Lord. That's how they started their prayer. Sovereign Lord. And then they pray, thinking back through the Old Testament, how this was always promised it would happen this way. 
And they closed their prayer saying, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the Christian understanding of these events is not, oh man, they got us that time. The Christian understanding of these events is that this is what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Why? So there's one reason we follow Jesus. He was not dishonored because he couldn't stop it. The second is because he was dishonored in order to save us. We've talked a lot about Isaiah 53 as we've been in this section of Mark, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this is 700 years prior prophesying what the coming king, the Messiah, would be like. And it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So we, we see these people mistreating Jesus, and we think, how dare they? But as we look in the perfect mirror of God's word, and we, we look at them, we see our own reflection there. It was our sins that brought this about. Your sins, my sins. That song is true. These are good lyrics. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. If you're walking around through life under the weight and burden of sin, You need to be reminded that you don't have to. Jesus bore the weight and burden of your sin. If you're walking around in ongoing unrepentant sin, you need to know that that is contributing to the spitting on Jesus, to the pressing down of the crown of the thorns, to the the beating him in the head with the reed, to the striking him, to the mocking him. Sin is no small thing. In order for God to absolve us of our sins, it costs this. So he was not dishonored because he couldn't stop it. He was dishonored in our place so that we could be saved and forgiven. And then thirdly, we follow him because he will one day be honored by everyone. This is just a fact. Okay, you can put this down as a fact, the same as like the laws of gravity or fact, The law of Jesus' return and honor is a fact. It is going to happen. Philippians 2, 6-11. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's where we leave off in our reading today. But Easter is coming, and Easter points us forward to the future. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, 
every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. People who are alive upon his return, people who have, have died and been buried, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That high priest, those chief priests, those scribes, when Jesus returns, there will be a resurrection and they will once again look upon Jesus. But he will not be the humble man that they saw. He will be the king. He will not be on a cross. He'll be wearing a crown. Pilate will be raised from the dead and face the true king. Every knee, every tongue, every person who has ever lived, including us. Jesus is the king who was dishonored by everyone, but who will be honored by everyone. The good news of Christianity is that the king is coming. The rightful king who rules all of this is coming. And he will bring justice to all the rebels who have forsaken his reign. But the good news is he has made a way for all those who will put down their arms, cease their rebellion, will turn from their sin, to be forgiven, pardoned, and not only that, granted full citizenship in his kingdom. The cost of this citizenship has been paid for by the king himself on the cross. Christians are those who honor Jesus as king now. Who say with Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's resolve this week leading up to Easter Sunday, based on what we've seen in God's word, let's resolve to honor Jesus as the king this week. In our decisions, ask, what would honor the king? In our priorities, ask, what would bring the most glory to the king this week? In our word choices, what would best reflect the honor and dignity and glory of my king, Jesus Christ? In our spending choices with our money and our time and our energy, what would best show others that above everything else, I value Jesus the king. Our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, our working, our leisure, let all these things be done as citizens of the kingdom to honor the king. Let's wake up filled with purpose as citizens of the kingdom. When we watch the news, and sometimes it can just seem so bleak and frustrating, instead of adding our voice to the chorus of those who say all is lost and is hopeless, Let's let it reinvigorate our allegiance to the coming king. Let's let it energize us in our mission to bring the good news of forgiveness and pardon to as many people as we can. When we come together next week on Easter Sunday, let's let our celebration just be a release valve for the high honor that we hold in our hearts for our king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Romans. He is the king of the Americans. He is the king of every one of us. He is the king of every person who's ever lived. He is the king of every king, every president, every governor, every emperor. He is the king of kings and lord of lords.
Lord, would you please expand our ability to honor him and glorify him. And even this week, in practical, real-life ways, let us live to honor the king. Thank you for letting us be citizens of your kingdom. In Jesus' name.